Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts. We're using these 3Ds, desire, design, and destiny. He really does uncover the wisdom and insight of John Paul II. What are these 3Ds? Well, by desire, he wants us to see what we long for, huh? by design, uh, what we were created for, and by destiny, what we are headed for. So this is what this book has been about. We are in uh, that last section, Destiny, where this evening we will be reflecting into the importance of love itself and the nature of love, which for all intents and purposes is probably my favorite topic. So without further ado, let us just jump right in. If you do have your book, we are on page 144, the beginning of chapter 13. And as Christopher West highlights here, Benedict XVI summarizes well where this book has taken us so far and where we still need to go when he writes that love promises infinity, eternity, a reality far greater and totally other than our everyday existence. Yet, we have also seen that the way to attain this goal is not simply by submitting to instinct— Purification and growth and maturity are called for, and these also pass through the path of renunciation. Benedict closes, far from rejecting or poisoning Eros, they heal it and restore its true grandeur. So for Benedict XVI, what does he want us to see? That without this healing and restoration, Eros is not some ascent in ecstasy toward the divine, but a fall, a degradation of man. Without this healing and restoration, we pursue happiness in erotic love, but what do we find? Heartache. We seek to be lifted up but are pulled down. My friends, salvation in Christ reaches us right here, in our pain, in our disillusionment, in our broken hearts, and yes, even in our erotic yearnings. It's the popular Franciscan preacher, Father Cantalamesa, who says, Christ has come to save the world beginning with Eros, which is the dominant force that comes from his work, Two Faces of Love. And my friends, this is a dramatic and important assertion, that the work of salvation begins with Eros because Eros is the dominant force, and the salvation of Eros has one final purpose, to reorient us toward our heavenly destiny and enable us to attain it. This truth lies at the center of of theology of the body. Now, how might we gain more insight into, the, into this truth? Well, as always, we turn to sacred scripture. We probably don't read sacred scripture enough, so let us turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2, and the wedding feast at Cana. This is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, 
What have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, here we see, with a much closer look, Christ beginning his work of salvation with Eros at his first miracle. He comes to a wedding feast in Cana where the couple has run out of wine. What is the symbolism here? Well, John Paul II observes that the lack of wine can be interpreted as an allusion to the lack of love that threatens the relationship between man and woman. Since the dawn of sin, eros has been cut off from agape. That is, eros, that human erotic love, has been cut off from agape, that divine sacrificial love. Or, if you want to go with the symbolism of Cana, eros has run out of God's wine. Christ's first miracle in so many ways, my dear friends, is to restore the wine to Eros in super abundance. In super abundance, huh? And certainly we can say, as Christopher West does here, you know, super abundance is an understatement. The six water jars that were filled to the brim held 20 to 30 gallons each. If you were to average that out, that gives us 150 gallons of the best wine, which equals what? About 750 bottles. This is the kind of extravagance our Lord pours out on us, and He wants us to drink up. We must remember in sacred scripture that wine was a symbol of joy, most notably um, at a wedding, right? Rejoicing, merrymaking. So indeed, the goal of the Christian life from this perspective is to get utterly intoxicated on God's wine. If you're to go back to the day of Pentecost, when the love of God descended upon the apostles, some among the crowd accused them of what? Being drunk. Huh? If you're to go to Acts chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, we should certainly rejoice in this delicious and strong wine. But before we begin to misinterpret what I'm talking about here and what theology of the body gets into here, before we get too giddy, (laughs) we have to keep in mind that this wine, which is an allusion to the Eucharist, is poured out for us through Christ's suffering and death. That's right. The ecstasy is always tied to the agony. Uh, Easter Sunday must first pass through Good Friday. If we are going to experience the peak, we must also know the valley. They simply go together in the Christian life. And this means that authentic love always involves the cross. 
let me say that again. Authentic love always involves the cross. Why? Because love has a way of making demands on us, radical demands in many ways. By the way, what does the word uh, radical mean? Uh, the Latin is radicalis, uh, coming from the root radix, right? It simply means root, or we can uh, translate that as going to the origin. So when love makes demands on us, radical demands uh, on us, it has us going to the origin and source of love, huh? I mean, it's easy to resent those demands, especially when lust promises the same fulfillment without those demands. But it is precisely here in the lure we feel towards satisfying desire without accepting love's demands that we must take our stand in choosing to love love, which is to say, in choosing to embrace the cross. Why? Because the cross is the root. The cross is what it means to go to the origin of love, the fullness of love, the reality of love. Now, the temptation, I think, for some of us is to say, Lord, I don't want this cross. Take me down from this cross. Jesus experiences the same temptation that we experience to come down from the cross. And yet, as we know, he remained bound to that harsh tree, to that harsh tree unto death. And in doing so, he exercises a remarkable freedom. Remember that passage that comes to us from John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Again, what is most native to love is freedom. Now, we can see in Christ's free gift of love that loving love and freeing freedom are closely related. Freedom exists for the sake of love. Indeed, we are not meant to, uh, we can say, store up freedom for ourselves. Essentially, we are meant to spend our freedom on love. But to the degree that we are enslaved by lust, we have no freedom to spend on love. And only if we truly love love will we have the necessary motivation to endure the exacting work of what it means to free freedom. If we love lust instead of loving love, then we will see no need to free freedom from lust. What will we do? We will simply indulge in our lusts and call it love. Is this not what we do today? I mean, is this not what we do today? Now, it's certainly true that love and lust can sometimes be difficult to distinguish. A man, for example, upon recognizing a woman's beauty, might wonder where the line is between treating her as an object for uh, his own gratification and properly admiring her beauty as a person. But this question only arises among those who truly love love. Those who love lust aren't even aware of the need to make such distinctions. Why? Because lust holds sway in their hearts, and they just roll with it. They just go with it, and then they won't think twice about it. 
And Christopher West says, What we often call love in the sexual relationship, if we're honest enough to look at it plainly, amounts to little more than two people using each other. You know, lust impels people very powerfully toward physical intimacy. This, of course, is no secret, and it dominates our culture today. But if such intimacy grows out of nothing more than a selfish desire for physical and or emotional gratification, is this love? And if we're going to be honest with ourselves again, we can identify it not as love, but the opposite of love. Why? We often think that the opposite of love is hate. But really, in this context, it's not hatred. It's to use. As many of our own painful experiences confirm, to use a person as a means to an end or to be used in this way is contrary to the very nature and meaning of love itself. And it hurts. Love is to will the good of the other, not the uh, self-getting desire, if you will. Huh? Again, what is that great quote that comes to us from John Paul II? We are made to love people, use things, and we love things and use people. This drives home what Christopher West is talking about here and what we are re reflecting about this evening. Now, what more can we say about love? Society says a lot about love and falling in love, but what does falling in love actually mean? Is love something we merely fall into? What role does the will play in uh, the act of falling in love? Is love a feeling? Is, is love a sensual attraction, an emotion, a decision? I mean, these are important questions. What is the proper relationship between desiring my own fulfillment and working for the good of the other, as we just touched upon it? These, of course, are some of the questions that uh, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, explored in great length, of course, in his preamble, if you will, to Theology of the Body, Love and Responsibility. It is there where we learn that emotions, feelings, and sensual attraction constitute what he calls, and you've heard me talk about it before, the raw material of love. You see, my friends, there exists a misguided tendency to consider them the finished form of love. And by them, I mean emotions, feelings, and sensual attraction. And we might find ourselves attracted emotionally or physically to any number of people that we encounter. Should we tell our loved ones that we have fallen in love with, with another person just because we felt a certain attraction to someone? I mean, it's obvious that emotions and attractions are fickle and can be misguided. We need to engage our will in order to gather up this, as John Paul II called it, raw material and build something with it worthy of the name love. Why? We cannot properly give the name love to something that is only a particular element of love, something that is only a portion of love. In fact, as uh, John Paul II says so beautifully, these various elements of love 
if they are not held together by the correct gravitational pull, may add up not to love, but to its direct opposite. Beautiful. Now, you can imagine that this, this correct gravitational pull is found where? But in the proper balance between love understood as desire for one's own good and love understood as benevolence and desiring and working for the good of the other. Once we understand and appreciate the more holistic understanding of love, well, my dear friends, then we will be able to appreciate all the more the great vocation that God has entrusted us with to what? Love. If you were to go back to the beginning of our treatment in this work, fill these hearts, what did we discover? But the yearning of Eros reveals, reveals that we are incomplete, that we are in search of another to make sense of ourselves, to complete us, to fill full what we lack. This, of course, is expressed in the well-known passage from Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good for man to be alone. And this is man in the generic sense, all of us, not just the male, of course. If it is not good for a person to be alone, then it is good for us to seek the completion of our humanity in an other. This is part of the very nature of Eros. Love understood as desire recognizes the other as a good and desires that other because that person is what? Good for me, right? That person, what? Completes me. We've heard the line from Jerry Maguire, you complete me? Well, there's more than just a kernel of truth in that, right? It's something that actually belongs to the narrative of Genesis and what is written in our very bodies. In this way, the person and the love we share become a sign, a sign of our ultimate destiny, union with God forever, completion in God forever. But love as desire, as we touched upon in the beginning of this book, is not the whole essence of authentic love between persons, right? It's not enough to long for a person as good for oneself, one must also, and above all, long for the other person's good. If one's love is only about fulfilling oneself, then we end up not with love, but with what? Egoism. If one is not committed to sacrificing oneself for the other's true good, then love as desire devolves, degenerates into love as use, which, of course, is not love at all. John Paul II in Love and Responsibility speaks to this, and he calls it the utilitarian sense, right? Which is a word that just simply means to use, to use for uh, one's own selfish gain. Selfless desire, on the other hand, for the other's true good is what we call benevolence in love, huh? If love as desire says, I long for you as a good, love as benevolence says, I long for your good, and I long for that which is good for you, you see? 
Love as desire is not itself a problem or a defect. It is something that reveals ultimately what is incomplete. It must be balanced out with love as benevolence. The person who truly loves longs not only for his or her own good, but for the other person's good, and he does so with no ulterior motive, no selfish consideration. I love for the sake of love. I love for the sake of love. This is the uh, purest form of love. And of course, it brings the greatest fulfillment. Being married for 11 years, I can say that that fulfillment indeed is true. It is a reality when we enter into that more sacrificial dimension of love. But I, like anyone, <laughs> am human and I fall. And uh, what we need to do, my friends, is uh, pull back and really challenge ourselves each and every day in prayer to be a man and women of purity, that we might understand the importance uh, of eros uh, as it points to agape and how agape really is the finished form of eros. We need to enter into this dynamism, this dynamic every day. So that being said, once again, let's acknowledge that erotic love is without a doubt a search for completion in the other. But as love matures, it becomes more and more an unqualified benevolence, a desire to uphold the good of the other and work for the good of the other, even at great cost to oneself. As love matures, we focus less on how the other person makes me feel and more on the unrepeatable value and dignity of the other person, you see. And this is a love for the other person as he or she really is, not as the person of our imagination, not as the person we wish him or her to be, but the real person, warts and all, right? <laughs> John Paul II once said, the strength of such a love emerges most clearly when the beloved person stumbles, when his or her weaknesses or even sins come into the open. One who truly loves does not then withdraw his love, but loves all the more, loves in full consciousness of the other's shortcomings and faults. For the person as such never loses its essential value beautiful. What does this speak to here? Well, simply, love itself can never be conditioned to anything. When love is based only on the pleasure and good feelings the other person can give me, that love will last only as long as those good feelings last. And as many of us know, that's not very long. <laughs> when the other person's faults, shortcomings, and sins are revealed, which inevitably happens and inevitably causes one to suffer, the shoddy foundation of that love is revealed and the illusion of love bursts, bursts like a bubble. My dear friends, only when love reaches the value of the person, which in of itself is inexhaustible, does it have a foundation that lasts forever. Christopher West here in his reflection into the subject matter, turns to 
an Italian author by the name of Rocco Buttiglioni. He says this, Only the value of the person can sustain a stable relationship. The other values of sexuality are wasted away by time and are exposed to the danger of disillusion. But this is not the case for the value of the person, he observes, which is stable and in some way infinite. When love develops and reaches the person, then it is forever. Unquote. Beautiful. What is he saying there? Well, when love is forever, we're experiencing a human love that truly points us to our divine destiny. You see, my friends, mature love is attracted not just by the sexual attributes or qualities of a person that light a spark in me. Attraction to such qualities can form the raw material of love, but if love stops merely at a person's pleasing and attractive qualities, sexual or otherwise, a permanent shadow will be cast over the permanency of the relationship. Why? Well, think of it, my dear friends. A person's qualities change with time. Furthermore, qualities in of themselves are repeatable. Attractive qualities can always be found in others and to even a more pleasing degree, if that's what we reduced attraction to. Individual persons, however, are unrepeatable. They can never be compared to, measured by, or replaced by another. Because every person has an individual, unrepeatable story to tell that make them who they are. This, my dear friends, is a salient point in our reflections as it relates to attraction and love. Very important. Love that hankers after what is merely pleasing and repeatable in a person will do just that, repeat itself with whoever possesses those pleasing qualities. In this case, we really miss out on the sense of adventure. On the other hand, love that reaches the unrepeatable mystery of the other person is a love that's truly that, unrepeatable, stable, sure. It is an inexhaustible treasure that can't possibly be found elsewhere. Why? Because that person is unrepeatable. In this case, love's inherent adventure is something worth living for. And I dare say, this is what we long for. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. As always, my dear friends, if you have any uh, questions about anything we talk about as it relates to theology of the body, uh, anything we talk about as it relates to the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Again, that's jholljmj at yahoo.com. Or you can go to my website at joelcraft.org and just hit the contact link button there and send your email on its way. Okay, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday, at 5.30, here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.